Once we examined chapter 10 of Revelation, and I began work in earnest on chapter 11, I sensed that something, something had changed, something was different. For a while I couldn't explain it, but then I realized that with chapter 11 and the opening of the second parenthesis at the end of the sixth trumpet, our perspective had shifted. Ooh. The... um, I forgot to hand out the reading things. Where'd they go? Did you put them away? Nope. Okay. No, I did. I did. Of course I did. See why I write things down. I know that. Now... Pretty soon I'm going to have to have a leash on me between me and Linda so that she can control me. Okay. Yeah, is any... Yeah, well, I know, uh, I know there's some that need the... What, that I'm punishing you with my ineptitude? Yes. Yes. Well, one thing that is occupying my mind as I'm reading my first paragraph, and, and I was thinking about it during, uh, uh, what's his name? Jamie's. Jamie's message, which was wonderful. Uh, I was thinking how rooted his message was in now. His, his illustrations, his, uh, the, the application for it was all now. And now I come up here and it's all future. I don't know what to make of that, but it just occurred to me. Okay. Thank you for tying the two together. Okay, okay. Let's reel this back in. I realized with chapter 11 and the opening of the second parenthesis at the end of the sixth trumpet, our perspective had shifted, perhaps subtly, but sufficient for me to notice that something had changed. So far in our march through the tribulation, we've uncovered a systematic series of judgments. Plagues, eruptions, crashing stars, and fantastical beasties that would terrify Frankenstein's monster. In one sense, the narrative's very ferocity has held us at arm's length, I would contend. No one in this room can claim any similar experience with such things. 
so far, it has been as if we've been viewing this from afar through a wide-angled lens. And when you're looking through a wide-angle lens, things look smaller than they really are. Sort of like your mirror on the side of your car. And the perspective is one of detachment, dispassionate, far away. Now, however, things are starting to get real. With this new, with this series of parentheses, and especially with chapter 11, it's as if we're now seeing these passing events up close and personal. as if we could be experiencing them ourselves, or that we're reading history rather than future prophecy. Oh, there will be more fantastical prophecies, but now, in a sense, we're no longer just viewing prophecy from afar. Now it is as if we are on the ground experiencing very real events. We're in the middle of it. One more thing before we dig into the text. Perhaps more than any other portion of the Revelation, chapter 11 requires that we take a firm stand on our interpretive position. Every commentator agrees with, and almost always cites specifically, Henry Alford's remarks at the beginning of his notes on chapter 11, found in his famous Greek Testament Critical Exegetical Commentary, 1863-1878. Write that down, there'll be a test. Alford writes this, This passage may well be called, even more than the previous one, the crux of interpreters, as it is undoubtedly one of the most difficult in the whole apocalypse. Frankly, I've read that before, and I tend to dismiss it. I don't want to get bogged down in how difficult this is. Let's just, let's just push into it and see what happens. One of the reasons I so seldom refer to the commentary of Alan F. Johnson in the Expositor's Bible Commentary is that he cleaves to no one interpretive method. One passage he interprets literally. The next he interprets figuratively. His position on chapter 10 was pretty much right down the line with our literalist approach. Whereas his position on chapter 11 runs screaming away from the literalist approach. For example, his position is that the temple located in the holy city, verses 1 and 2, figuratively represents the Christian church universal. This is why I say that chapter 11, which most agree continues the narrative from chapter 10, they are of a piece, forces us to choose sides especially with our position regarding Christians and Israel during the last things. Do we say that the church has become the new Israel and by extension the new chosen people of God, that is, has the church replaced Israel 
not just physically, but in the heart of God? Or do we say that the two remain separate and are treated differently during the last things? In case you missed out on the first part of this class, we go with the latter. As stated in the third session of this class, ours is a dispensational approach. Meaning, as summarized very well by Michael J. Vlock, dispensationalism is an evangelical theological system that addresses issues concerning the biblical covenants, Israel, the church, and end times. It also argues for a literal interpretation of Old Testament prophecies involving ethnic, national Israel, and the idea that the church is a New Testament entity that is distinct from Israel. That's Michael J. Vlock. If that is our well-reasoned approach to the church and Israel and the study of the eschaton, then we cannot conveniently change sides willy-nilly whenever things get difficult. So we will bravely soldier on through these challenging passages in the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I'll let Dr. Walver describe our approach to this chapter. This is what he writes. The guiding lines which govern the exposition, exposition to follow regard this chapter as a legitimate prophetic utterance in which the terms are taken normally. Hence, the great city of 11.8 is identified as the literal city of Jerusalem. The time periods are taken as literal time periods. The two witnesses are interpreted as two individuals, which makes this presentation an outlier. Most people do not, most commentators do not agree with that. Continuing, Walvard. The three and a half days are taken literally. The earthquake is a literal earthquake. The 7,000 men who are slain by the earthquake are 7,000 individuals who die in the catastrophe. The death of the witnesses is literal, as are their resurrection and ascension. Now, in this session, we'll just cover the first portion of chapter 11. We'll complete it next week. So we begin with measuring the temple, verses 1 to 2. Let's, let's read Revelation 11, verses 1 to 2. Greg. Then a measuring rod, like a staff, was given to me, saying, Get up and measure the sanctuary of God and the altar and those who worship in it, and leave out the court, which is outside the sanctuary, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will trample the holy city underfoot for 42 months. By the way, that's a good translation, sanctuary. Most of our translations say temple. Sanctuary is good, which we'll get to in a moment. As in Amos 7, for one example, there are times when the Lord God measures things in preparation for their destruction. At other times, however, 
as here, he measures them for the purpose of claiming or authenticating them. When we purchased our property outside Winterset 31 years ago, part of the process was to order a survey to determine precisely what we were paying for and to establish for the public record what would subsequently be called our land. This is what either the strong angel of chapter 10, or God, or Christ Jesus, commands John to do with the temple in Jerusalem as chapter 11 opens. Only the King James versions identify the voice with the angel. The better manuscripts do not include this. The text really doesn't say who it is, but I think, as we'll see in a little bit, there are more clues that it's a it's deity. Note that nowhere are the results of his measurements mentioned, because that's not the point. He doesn't care what the size is. The point is establishing ownership, not dimensions. This then raises the obvious question. Which temple is it? Some say the temple in heaven, but that makes no sense whatsoever. Considering the second part of verse 2. For it has been given to the nations, they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Makes no sense if the temple's in heaven. There are a total of five earthly temples mentioned in God's word, not counting the tabernacle. First was Solomon's temple. Then Zerubbabel's temple built after the exile when a portion of Israel returned to rebuild the temple and later the walls of Jerusalem. Third was Herod's temple, the one we're most familiar with, the most grand temple, the largest, begun in 19 B.C. The temple built and or used during the tribulation. And finally, the millennial temple built by the Lord himself, Ezekiel 40 to 48 in amazing detail. The temple in chapter 11 is the fourth temple, the one built after or just prior to an agreement with Antichrist. Work it out with the Jews. He permits them to restore temple sacrifices. The operative text is found in Daniel 9.27 at the end of his prophecy regarding the 70 weeks. Here's what he writes. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offering. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate, even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed, is poured out on the one who makes desolate. Now, we studied that a long time ago. But to paraphrase, Antichrist will make a covenant with Israel for seven years. That is, one week of years. The span of the tribulation for them to restore the temple worship and sacrifices. But after only three and a half years, that is, the middle of the week of years, 
Antichrist will renege on his agreement and put a stop to the sacrifices and offerings. This raises a second question. One we discussed back in session 10. Why would there be blood, that is, atoning sacrifices, during the tribulation? As we covered in session 10, there are two reasonable possibilities. First, according to Gleason Gleason Archer, well-respected biblical scholar, no slouch. This refers to Messianic Jews newly in Christ since the rapture. Since these Jewish believers trust in Jesus as their Messiah, it may well be that the sacrifices will be conducted as memorial services, services, much like we have our Lord's Supper, our communion. To remember. Rather than for atonement purposes as in Old Testament times. A second possibility is that since this agreement between the Jews and Antichrist will be established during the early days of the tribulation, early on, these may just as well be Jews clinging to their ancient traditions, celebrating the reestablishment of the temple as God's sanction of a revival of the Mosaic law and its sacrifices. This is John Walvard's position, and I lean toward this latter position, but either is possible. We can't be dogmatic about it. There is a final question I would propose. Some might wonder, how can a new temple be built in such a short period of time? I've always wondered about this. I mean, it's not really that much time. After all, Herod's temple took 83 years to build. But... Who says that a new temple for the tribulation must equal the size and grandeur of Herod's? The temple began as a modest tabernacle, literally a tent, portable tent carried around in the desert. That was their place of worship. This one might resemble in appearance something like a local community center built in less than a year. Who knows? God's Word doesn't say. There's just a temple, a temple during the, during the tribulation. John is handed a measuring rod, literally reed, for the measuring. In the Jordan Valley grows a very tall reed, 15 to 20 feet, hollow and lightweight yet sufficiently rigid to be used as a walking stick, which was commonly used as a measuring device. They'd lop it off at a given length, and they'd use them as easy to carry, and they could use them as measuring rods. At the end of verse 1, we see that God is also measuring His possession of remaining Israel. He says, measure those who worship in it. John MacArthur writes, It's best to see it as God's measuring off Israel, symbolized by her temple, for salvation and for His special protection, preservation, 
and favor. The prophecies yet to be given to John will thus distinguish between God's favor toward Israel and his wrath on the pagan world. Now verse 2. The instructions, I'm sorry, leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it. For it has been given to the nations and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. In verse 2, the instructions include, the instruction includes what John is not to measure. The word translated temple in verses 1 and 2 is not what we would expect, Hiron, which would be the entire temple complex, the whole thing. But noun, N-A-O-N, which refers to the sanctuary only. Sanctuary is a good translation of this. Hence, the picture. I've isolated as much as I could just the sanctuary, the place where only the priests could go. This The word refers to just the building, that central building, the holy place and holy of holies. So it's just where the priests can go in the holy place, and which includes the holy of holies, where only the high priest can go once a year on the Day of Atonement. And here we have our first time stamp for this prophecy. For it has been given to the nations, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. There is is healthy debate over whether these 42 months refer to the first or second half of the tribulation. However, not just the placement of the vision itself, but its content seems to indicate the time of the great tribulation, the latter half. The second half. Turn over to chapter 12, please. Just for the moment, for time consideration, I'm going to lift out a brief supporting reference without giving full context. We'll shortly be studying this passage in depth, so let me just for now point us to verses 5 and 6 of chapter 12. Here Israel is presented as a woman who has given birth to a son, Christ Jesus, the Messiah, whom the red dragon, Satan, is trying to destroy. At God's direction and preparation, she flees to a place of safety for a period of time. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Then the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1,260 days. What strikes me about this passage, no extra charge for this, is how artfully and succinctly the first sentence summarizes in just a handful of words the entirety of the gospel. Do you notice that? Including Christ's ascension and the millennium. Now, I don't suggest that that you 
use that as your opening line to non-believers, but really it does cover the entire life of Christ, his ascension, and his enthronement in just one sentence. But that's not what we're here for. As verse 3 in our passage confirms, 42 months equals 1,260 days, or three and one-half years. Around the middle of the tribulation, when Antichrist removes his mask, takes over the temple sanctuary, and openly turns against Israel, God will conduct Israel to a place of security in the wilderness. You might say, a sanctuary as it were. There this remnant will be nourished, literally, that means made to grow, for three and one-half years. Now back to chapter 11. This means that Gentiles, the nations, anyone not Jewish, will tread underfoot, not just the outer courtyard of the temple, but the entire city of Jerusalem for 42 months. Why that marker? Because then Christ returns. And everything will change. Now we come to the two witnesses. Verses 3 to 14. Now just as when the sixth trumpet sounded and abruptly out of nowhere an army of 200 million appears... In verse 3, the someone speaking declares the working orders for my two witnesses, as if we're supposed to already know who they are. Oh, by the way, here's my two witnesses. Let's read, the, let's read verses 3 to 5. Revelation 11, 3 to 5. <clears throat> and I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Sidebar. Though it is demonstrably true from the following verses that these two individuals have indeed been granted special powers, the word authority in the NASB and ESV and power in the NIV and King James versions are not in the original text. Thus, the NASB sets authority in italics, telling us that it's been inserted to help us understand the NIV 2011, it's a good one. I never 2011, that's a better one. That's what I'm going to get Renee for Christmas. The NIV 2011 changes this to, and I will appoint my two witnesses. The first thing that catches my eye is that the text says, my witnesses. Do you notice that? In our previous session, we did not conclusively identify, quote, the voice which I heard from heaven, verse 8, 
which orders John to seal up the words of the thunder and to take the book from the angel. And here, probably dictates the first three verses. Here, however, seems to be good evidence that it is indeed either Christ or God the Father. Yet, softening the conclusion, softening that conclusion, is that none of our common versions which do capitalize pronouns, do so here. Even the NASB, which is rather generous in its capitalization. Any pronoun, it'll capitalize it. Nonetheless, I think the voice is that of deity. I think the evidence seems to point to that. And the text says the witnesses are clothed in sackcloth, Their apparel of sackcloth is a sign of mourning over the doom which is to come, as well as a sign of humility before God. I'll not take up time trying to identify these two mysterious figures. Trust me, much ink has been spilled and many trees have been murdered by scholars and commentators in their vain attempt to put names to these two men generally leaning toward some two Old Testament prophets that have come back for this purpose. I'm not suggesting that it's not a fascinating consideration to look into the possible historic figures that these two men could be, but in the final analysis, it doesn't really matter who they are. We're more concerned with what they're accomplishing, what they're doing, what they stand for, And it wouldn't be worth the half hour it would take me to run through all the names. God's word is silent on this, and there's no good reason to speculate. Absent names, we conclude that they are like Melchizedek, Genesis 14, 18, Hebrews 7, 1 to 4, one of the most fascinating figures in God's word. Like Melchizedek, they are mysterious, yet human to male individuals. We know they're male. All the nouns used to speak of them are all in the masculine. Who probably emerge from the general population of post-rapture believers. Empowered by God to dramatically present the gospel with not just words, but signs and wonders. These guys really go to town. MacArthur adds, quote, The two witnesses will proclaim to the world that the disasters occurring during the last half of the tribulation are the judgments of God. They will warn that God's final outpouring of judgment and eternal hell will follow. God's word does, however, identify them by a different manner. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Oh, well now we know who they are. This is a reference to the prophecy of Zechariah. Here, in this passage, the not yet portion of a now closer to his time, Zechariah's time. Keep your finger here. We'll be right back 
But turn please to the prophecy of Zechariah. If you haven't been there for a while, it's the next to the last book in the Old Testament. Zechariah, Malachi, and then Matthew. In chapter 4 of Zechariah, we find the pertinent text. Let's read Zechariah 4, 1 to 3. Lois. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. And he said to me, What do you see? And I said, I see, and behold, a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it, and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also two olive trees by it, one on the right side of the bowl and the other on the left side. When the prophet asks the angel to explain these items, he's told, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Zerubbabel was the governor or political leader leading some of the exiles back to Judah to rebuild the temple. Zechariah then asked the angel about the two olive trees, which in the vision, it's hard to see this in the text, but they're literally permanently connected to the lampstand. Like you'd put an IV in to your vein and plug the other end into the patient. That, so so the, the, the two trees, the two olive trees, are continuously feeding the lampstand to keep oil in it. That's, that's the idea. So Zechariah then asks the angel about the two olive trees, which in the vision are connected to the lamps, thus permanently supplying them with oil. And he said, these are the two, the angel said, these are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. In the now of this prophecy, Zechariah's prophecy, God is graphically demonstrating to the prophet that it would be His Spirit alone. The oil running to the lamps represents the Spirit. Working through the two leaders, Zerubbabel and the high priest Joshua, or Yeshua. The setting is one of spiritual revival and the restoration of the temple, that is, worship of Yahweh, in Judah, solely through the working of the Spirit of God. In our Revelation passage, the not yet of this prophecy is fulfilled in the two witnesses, empowered by the Holy Spirit to bring revival and the national conversion of Israel to the Messiah. And after the upheaval of the tribulation, the building of the millennial temple just as in the now they were going to be rebuilding 
the temple then. As you return to chapter 11, note that both visions end with the same statement, identifying these individuals as, these are, that is the two anointed ones and the two olive trees and the two lampstands, these are the ones that stand before the Lord of the whole earth. Whole earth in one, just earth in another. But these are the two that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now verse 5. Verse 5 reveals some of the supernatural powers God has given these two prophets. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. I love the way it says it. He must be killed in this way. Here is a primal force that has always been in God's arsenal for dealing with enemies of His righteousness and sovereignty. In Genesis 19, it's fire and brimstone with which the Lord God dispatches Sodom. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven, and He overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. In 2 Kings 1, Elijah calls down fire upon the soldiers sent by Ahaziah. Quote, Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty with his fifty, and he went up to him, and behold, he was sitting on the top of the hill. That's where they get it from. Everything's in God's word. And he said to him, O man of God, the king says, come down. Elijah replied to the captain of fifty, Hmm. If I am a man of God, well, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. This happened twice. The captain of the third group of soldiers, not surprisingly, tried a different approach. Then it was fire with which the Lord dealt with Korah's rebellion in Numbers 16. It was how he dealt with the sin of unauthorized fire in essence from the two sons of Aaron in Leviticus 10. Here, however, the fire, just as with that launched from the horses under the sixth trumpet, emanates from, flows, proceeds, goes forth, pours from the mouths of the two witnesses. This, fires, <clears throat> this fire serves as both protection for them and manner of judgment upon anyone attempting to harm God's messengers. I can see how someone might want to spiritualize this. Well, you know, it's just like the sword out of the mouth of the Son of God, you know. It's, it's not literally a sword. It's not literally fire. Well, except for that troublesome phrase that that's how they're killed. If it was just words, if it was just some message, I doubt that it would kill them. No, I I take it as fire. It's the word, fire. The narrative later in this chapter that describes the celebration when these witnesses are finally killed illustrates how very much they were hated by those who dwell on the earth. Verse 10. And had need of this rather dramatic and lethal means of 
protection. It's not at all difficult for us today to imagine the extraordinary level of animus leveled against these two. Their message will not be one that is welcomed. The environment will not welcome it. The society won't welcome it. The church is gone. It will be a time very much like our own, only worse. MacArthur describes a societal environment not too different from our own when he writes, In the tribulation time when the world is overrun by supernatural demonic activity, false religion, murder, sexual perversion, and rampant wickedness, the supernatural signs performed by the two witnesses will mark them as true prophets of God. Except for that obvious supernatural demonic activity, that description sounds very much like our own world. Their supernatural abilities of these two witnesses will be in intimidating and feared since it's hard to imagine that technology by then will have taken a backward turn it might but it's hard to imagine since even today the entire civilized world can know in seconds what's happening on the other side of the world no doubt a similar and even more instantaneous means of communication will ensure that except for those few who accept their accept their message Everyone globally will hate these two. From time to time in this study, we need to be reminded that the days described in the eschaton are not our days. And these two witnesses are a good example of that. It will be far it will be a far different dispensation than our own. Okay? Okay? Are you all right? Okay. Went down the wrong pipe. So my dad would have said. This will be a far different dispensation than our own the church age, the age of grace. Let me close by reading some of what Dr. J.A. Seiss writes about this. It's a good reminder for us. It puts this in perspective. Dr. Seiss. The two olive trees appear, but the golden candlestick is gone, and in its place is nothing but two lone lamps, the two witnesses themselves. Ministers of God are present, but their spirit and method are entirely different from what pertains to ministers of the gospel in the present dispensation. These witnesses kill, torment, deal out fiery judgments upon their enemies and avenge and resent the very wish to injure them even before it is outwardly manifested in act. 
This is not according to the Christian spirit. And very unlike the commands which are upon us now, we are not to avenge ourselves, not to render evil for evil, not to smite and kill our enemies, but to love them and do good to them and to be harmless as doves. Even Jesus himself, who had all power, refused to exercise it after the style of these two witnesses and has given us commandment to follow his steps. He tells us that he came not to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And in this spirit his servants have ever acted. Stephen is stoned. James is beheaded. Paul and Silas are beaten and imprisoned. Peter is crucified. Polycarp is burned. Antipas is put to death. But neither of them resists, nor attempts to defend himself by miracle or to avenge the wrong inflicted. But here are ministers of God of another order. Fire issueth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if anyone willeth to injure them, willeth to injure them, thinks about it, thus must be killed. The preaching of the gospel is a thing of joy and gladness. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him that bringeth good tidings, that publisheth peace, that bringeth good tidings of good, that publisheth salvation. Isaiah 52. But these witnesses are arrayed in sackcloth, and their very garb betokens calamity and judgment. Nature itself is joyful over the course of the messengers of grace. The prophetic word was, The mountains and the hills shall break forth before you into singing, and all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Instead of the thorn shall come up the fir tree, and instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle tree. Isaiah 55. But here... The heavens are shut up that no rain falls. The waters are turned to blood. The earth is smitten by many a plague, and they that dwell on it are tormented. Peace on earth and goodwill toward men is the keynote of the gospel. But the ministry of these witnesses is one of the three great apocalyptic woes. It is simply impossible, therefore, to find place for these witnesses as gospel ministers of the present dispensation. They have quite another commission and operate for quite other ends. They remind us rather of the old theocratic order when Jeroboam's hand was withered by the unnamed man of God when put forth to lay hold on him. And fire from heaven consumed the soldiers of Ahaziah that came against Elijah on the hill. That's J.A. Sice. It's important for us to remember this. As dispensationalists especially we need to remind ourselves this time that we are studying 
doesn't play by the same rules as our time. The dispensation of grace. The church age. The church age is done. The church is gone. Thank God it's gone. And what's left is hell on earth. And these are two witnesses in our passage meant for the time. They are not peace and love. They are not putting daisies in rifle barrels. They kill people who want to kill them. They are demonstrating supernaturally the power and sovereignty of God. Now in our next session we'll conclude our study of these two witnesses. Sorry, I overran a few minutes. Father God, we stand in awe of your ways. We struggle to understand. We want to understand. Yet, it's a a lot to digest. Help us to do that. By the power of your Spirit, the same Spirit with which you filled these two witnesses, we ask for your Spirit to inform us so that we can understand what your word is saying here in this troublesome passage. In Jesus' name, amen.